Welcome to Grow the Pie, the podcast where we ask the tough questions for responsible business. I'm Tom Gosling, Executive Fellow in the Centre for Corporate Governance at London Business School, and I'm with Alex Edmonds, Professor of Finance at London Business School and author of Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. Alex, welcome. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. So in this podcast series, we're digging into the principles behind your book and discussing how they apply to some of the thorniest problems relating to the role of business in society. So in the last episode, you outlined the business approach that you've called Pieconomics, whereby managers create value for investors through growing the pie for all stakeholders, rather than by seeking to maximise the share of the pie taken by shareholders. So in this way, companies create profit through fulfilling a purpose that benefits society. And and this is a view that's um, becoming quite popular as something that we should be aspiring to, with comments from people like uh, Larry Fink saying that ultimately the purpose is the source of long-term profitability, uh, or going even further than that, uh, Eric Stangerstad from Storebrand Asset Management said that ESG factors are not just nice to have, but are actually the drivers of outperformance. So in this episode, we're going to scrutinize some of those statements and look at the evidence for Pyconomics, but also that some of the evidence that, uh, that goes against it, because we think it's really important to look at counter evidence. So sometimes you'd think that the idea of um, doing well by doing good was so self-evident as, uh, as not to need uh, any proof. And so just to kick off, I use the term evidence there. And Alex, I think that the when people say academic evidence shows that, our sort of sceptical antennae at the Centre for Corporate Governance are immediately triggered. How do we distinguish sort of good from bad evidence? And, and what are some of the pitfalls of trying to demonstrate the relationship between responsible business and performance? Thanks, Tom. That's a really important question. So, so what is evidence to begin with? Often we think it's the plural of anecdote. So an anecdote is a single story. Evidence is lots of stories. So we often use it as a synonym for data. But evidence is, is very different from data because data is just a collection of facts. Evidence is when you use that data in order to support a particular hypothesis. And so then the difference between good and poor quality evidence is how conclusive evidence is for supporting that particular hypothesis and ruling out other hypotheses. So let me make this a little bit concrete. So the topic of this podcast series is whether companies that serve society deliver higher performance in the long term. So the hypothesis that we have is purpose leads to profit, but there's alternative hypotheses. It could be that causality is in the other direction. It could be that once a company is profitable, then it can start thinking about purpose. Or it could be there's what's known as emitted variables. There's third factors that drive both. For example, a great CEO, she could be both purposeful and also lead to the company being more profitable. And so what evidence is, is that this is a collection of data which rigorously will show the hypothesis that it's supposed to support, but also tries to carefully consider the alternative explanations and to the extent possible, rule out those alternative explanations. And the difference between good and bad evidence is sometimes evidence will find a correlation in the data and then claim it supports a hypothesis without giving due consideration to those alternative explanations. And this is a real issue, isn't it, in the area of responsible business? Because there are, you know, and as supporters of responsible business, 
we need to be really aware of this in ourselves, which is this tendency towards confirmation bias that we want to believe the data that supports our hypotheses. And, you know, and this is potentially a real problem in this area, isn't it? It exactly is. So what is the issue of confirmation bias? It's the tendency to latch on to studies that support what we would like to be true and disregard studies that contradict it. And while that's a problem in many fields, I think it's a particular problem in responsible business because we would love to live in a world in which ethical companies perform better. And so we're quite willing to believe studies that say that, uh, even if they're not very rigorous. But in fact, uh, the evidence is much more nuanced than people portray. And indeed, there was a recent Financial Times article by Brad Cornell, which was entitled, The ESG Concept Has Been Overhyped and Oversold, where ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. And what he's arguing is that people claim that responsibility always pays off. But when he takes his dispassionate and objective lens at it, he argues that the evidence is much more ambiguous and much weaker. And this really matters because it could well be that investors are putting their money in ethical funds, believing this is going to lead to higher payoffs. And ethical funds are often more expensive because you need costs in order to try to figure out what companies are responsible. And these extra fees could well be a waste of, of investors' money. Yeah, I saw that article uh, and, and it couldn't have been better time for, for the recording of this podcast. And I think one of the other issues that we get here is that if we overclaim for the evidence for responsible business, we provide an open goal for people who, who don't support the idea of responsible business to criticise all of the claims and evidence for it. So, so I think this point of being open to alternative points of view and counter evidence is, is critical, and we'll cover that as we go through today's discussion. But let's kick off with some sort of specific evidence in support of the Pikeonomics idea. And I'd like to start with your own study, Alex, on um, employee satisfaction. And wh why don't we um, talk through what you did there at the same time as sort of highlighting how you addressed some of these concerns around correlation versus causation and so on and so forth? Thanks, Tom. So this is one of the papers I, I wrote. I started when I was doing my PhD at MIT and got really, me really interested in responsible business. So I wanted to look at what is the link between responsibility and long-term stock performance. So the first question to ask is, what is the measure of responsibility that I'd like to use? And I chose to use employee satisfaction. So why did I look at that? Right, there are many other dimensions of responsibility. You could look at, say, the environment. You could look at, say, Catholic values. There's many things you can look at. So I think it's important to have a variable of responsibility, which is a plausible one, which one can think there is an economic link between that and long-term stock returns. And that's important to avoid the problem of spurious correlation, right? So if you run enough tests, it could be that you found a positive relationship, but it's just due to luck. So how do you address the issue of spurious correlation? You need to have a plausible variable, which is plausibly linked to long-term performance. And I think employee satisfaction is, is that, because in most organizations, employees are a key asset, whereas maybe for the environment that matters in some industries and it doesn't for others. So I thought this, out of all of the ESG dimensions, was perhaps the most plausible. And so what did your study find? 
Yeah, so what I wanted to look at is the link between employee satisfaction and long-term stock returns. And I found that companies with high employee satisfaction, as measured by the 100 best companies to work for in America, delivered high long-term performance. Now, I couldn't just stop there because how do I know that the companies on this list perform well because of employee satisfaction? It could be due to other factors. For example, Google has been on this list for many, many years. Google has done really well, but it could just be that the tech industry happened to do well rather than employee satisfaction. So for every company on this list, I had to control for what industry you're in. So I'm comparing Google not to the broader market, but to other tech firms. And we know that there's other factors which drive stock returns. For example, small companies do better. Companies with high valuation ratios tend to do worse. Companies that are good recent performers tend to do better in the future. And again, those are other things that I had to control for. Essentially, I wanted to strip out as many other differences between companies as possible, those omitted variables that I referred to earlier. And then what you're left with is the employee satisfaction as the driver. So that addressed the question of omitted variables, but you claim causation in this paper. So how did you demonstrate that this was a causal connection between employee satisfaction and stock returns as opposed to a correlation? So I actually don't fully claim causation. So I try to do all that I can in order to get towards causality. But actually, um, there's other papers that I'll, I'll mention afterwards, which I think do a better job than me of getting to causation. So I'll claim I do what I can to get to causation, but I wouldn't fully say that the study shows that. But how, how do I try to address the idea of reverse causality, which is a company needs to be doing better first before it spends money on employee satisfaction? So that's why I looked at stock returns being the measure of performance. So you might think, why don't I look at profitability instead? Well, with profitability, it could be that employee satisfaction causes better profitability or better profitability causes employees to be happy. But the nice thing about stock returns is that the stock return is the difference between the stock price this year and the stock price next year. So let's say that causality was in the wrong direction. So it was profitability that caused employees to be happy. Well, if the company was already profitable, then its stock price would already be high today. And so we shouldn't expect it to outperform going forwards. Now, it's a bit more complicated than that because we have to take into account the fact that maybe the stock market isn't fully efficient. It's sluggish to respond to recent financial performance. So I control for things such as momentum, which is recent uh, stock returns. But that's basically the the broad um, gist of it, is because the stock price covers what's unexpected between this year and next year, the current profitability of the company should already be baked into the current stock price. Okay, so this is interesting. So what you're saying is that it's your your approach creates strong suggestiveness of causality, but you're being cautious about not completely claiming causality. And I think that's important for the reasons that you correctly said, Tom, right at the start, because if I was to say, well, this is strong causal proof, so proof is a word you should always be very sceptical of if you see an academic paper claiming that, then people will say, well, yes, Alex, you've done loads of things. You've tried to control for all of these factors. But when you look at emitted variables, you've looked at the industry, you've looked at the size, you've looked at the valuation, but you can only control for observable variables. There might be some unobservable variables that you can't control for, something like management quality 
And so if I was to push the causal story uh, too much, then it would indeed um, backfire. So what I say right at the end of the paper in the concluding paragraph is the results are consistent with human relations theories, which argue that employee satisfaction causes stronger corporate performance and so forth. But I say it's consistent with that, but I don't say it causes it itself. And then I say, well, actually, future research, if future research is able to further nail down causality with something like a regression discontinuity, then it would provide stronger evidence than, than my existing study. Okay. And we might come back to just exploring what a regression discontinuity is. But just before leaving your study, a couple of other points that I thought were interesting. One was the the length of time it took for the employee satisfaction improvements to be reflected in the stock price. And I think you found it was was up to five years. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's right. And, and that's important because for my findings to hold, for the best companies to work for to outperform their peers, you need two things to be true. You don't only need for employee satisfaction to be valuable. You also need the market to fail to recognize that. Why? Because the identity of the best companies is public. So if indeed the stock market were efficient, then as soon as this list was announced, the stock price would jump. And therefore, you shouldn't be able to earn returns going forwards by buying this list. But in fact, I was able to, to earn these higher returns. And in fact, as you're saying, it, it took four to five years for the market to take this into account. And so why might this be? It might be because investors have the pie splitting mentality that we talked about in the last episode, thinking that, yeah, it's we know that these companies treat their work as well, but maybe they're fluffy companies that are distracted from the bottom line. And that's why they didn't incorporate the benefits of employee satisfaction into the stock price. Fascinating, isn't it? And I think as we when we come on to discuss CEO pay, I think this will this will be a factor that we need to be thinking about the time horizons of how performance is sort of measured, monitored and incentivized if we've got these potential large gaps in time before intangible investments are reflected in the in the stock price. Yes, absolutely. Because like while while it suggests that yes, you can grow the pie in the long term, what you do to help stakeholders does pay off in shareholder value. The key words are in the long term. So when we talk about CEO pay, one of the important things to reform is is the horizon of CEO pay. And what about um, your, your initial study was for the US market, wasn't it? But then you did extend this with co-authors to look at this uh, effect around the world. What did you find there? What I found was was actually that the results held in most other countries, but not every country. And, and so this is important because many academic studies are done with US data. And we often like to think that uh, what's true in the US is going to be true around the world. And I found that that was true generally, but it wasn't true in countries with um, rigid labor markets, so labor market regulation. And that makes sense because if the law is already requiring a decent level of employee well-being, such as through minimum wages or worker representation and restrictions on hours and so forth, then maybe it doesn't make a huge difference if you're much better than the average. In fact, if you're a best company to work for, you might be investing excessively in employee satisfaction. So if the average is already high, then there must be some limits after a point as to how the returns to employee satisfaction. And so what that suggests is, is that what is a, the optimal level of responsibility is 
context specific. So we often like to think of responsible investing as some one size fits all idea that if we have a measure of whatever it is, employee satisfaction or CEO pay structure, that it's always good and we can apply this to screen out or screen in particular stocks. But what this suggests is that we need to take into account that the context of a company. So for employees, there's some decent evidence that um, investing in employee well-being and satisfaction can lead to enhanced returns over the long term. And, and, and I think that would accord with, with the intuition of a, of a lot of people. Uh, but I suppose it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be sort of nice to employees on every occasion. I think this is sort of particularly relevant in the post-COVID world where companies will be needing to you know, downsize. There'll be a huge reallocation of uh, labor and capital resources across the economy. So how do you interpret your results in the context of companies that may need to be shedding workers? This is really important because what does it mean to be a great place to work? What does it mean to get on this list? Uh, What they looked at was many dimensions. It wasn't just quantitative factors such as headcount, new jobs created or wages, but qualitative factors such as trust in management, credibility, fairness, respect and so forth. And it may well be that that trust involves uh, knowing that the commercial realities of some industries such as travel will mean that there's going to be some downsizing. But if the downsizing happens, then it happens in a a fair way. So what might that entail? Airbnb has made a number of its employees redundant, but they're trying to do things to reduce the burden, such as providing at least 14 weeks of severance pay when in some jurisdictions the legal minimum might be too. So it's much more trustworthy to reduce headcount if that's necessary to preserve the long-term sustainability and viability of the business, rather than perhaps to say something like, we're not going to get rid of any workers, which might generate short-term PR, but actually be bad for the long-term future of the company, because if the company is then not commercially viable, then all jobs would be lost. So the idea of employee satisfaction being important, that doesn't mean that a company should not take commercially important decisions. What it does mean is that if it has to take a commercially important decision, which has some negative implications for employees, then it will do what it can to the extent possible and to the extent commercially viable to minimise those consequences. So we've talked about employees. Have studies like yours been undertaken for different stakeholder groups? And what can we say, for example, about customers or environmental and social factors more broadly? They have done. And the evidence here is more mixed. So the the Brad Cornell article does have some merit there. So for customers, there is a a study which shows that companies in the top 20% of the American Customer Satisfaction Index outperformed their peers significantly. However, that study is is only on an eight-year time period, and it might be just specific to that time period. In fact, most of the outperformance happened in the um, collapse of the internet bubble. Whereas um, if you take uh, my study, that was based on 28 years of data, and so we've got uh, greater satisfaction, sort of greater reassurance that it's something which is robust. And for the environment, there is indeed a, a measure which finds a positive correlation with shareholder returns. However, with the environment, there's multiple different measures of environmental stewardship. And it might be that other researchers tried with other measures of the environment and didn't find anything. So with employee satisfaction, because my measure was the only one available, 
for a long time period, I could at least convince the the, the peer reviewers and, and the editorial team that this was the only thing that I studied. It wasn't that I studied multiple measures and just came up with this one because it was significant, because there was no other measure available for such a long time period. Now, what happens if you take aggregated measures, because we've just looked at measures of different stakeholders, customers, employees, and the environment. Well, there are aggregated measures. So some listeners will be familiar with the MSCI ESG measure, which looks at different stakeholder dimensions. And there's a very nice paper by Muzaffar Khan, George Serafim, and Aaron Yun. And what they do is they find that companies that do well across all dimensions actually don't beat the market. And, and, and so that's important because it means the idea that good ESG always outperforms isn't the case. But then what they do is, is they lay on materiality, which is a concept that we covered last episode, where if companies do well on material stakeholder dimensions, but scale back on immaterial ones, then they do beat the market. So what that suggests is ticking all ESG boxes is actually worse than being discerning and knowing which are the ESG dimensions that are material to your business and which are the ones which uh, you can scale back on. That's fascinating, isn't it? And, And that does link to the concept that you describe in your book of purpose, not just about being you know, a good company, but actually being a focused company and focusing on those stakeholders to whom you're most material and that are most material to you. And it's interesting, therefore, that there is some evidence that that actually is what drives the improved returns. You also mentioned a paper by Caroline Flammer, and, and this might be where we come on to the, to the concept of regression discontinuity. So what is it that that paper does? So what this paper looks at was the effect of shareholder proposals on ESG dimensions. So what is a shareholder proposal? Um, Well, at an annual general meeting, um, investors don't just vote on the directors or the executive pay. It could be that shareholders have a proposal to, for example, have an anti-discrimination policy or have a policy for responsible sourcing and the like. Now, if shareholders make a proposal, then these proposals can be passed. And if they're passed, they are often implemented. These are advisory proposals, but actually half of the, the ones that are passed end up being implemented. So what she looks at is what is the effect of a proposal being passed on future accounting and shareholder performance. Now, the problem here is that when a shareholder proposal is passed, it doesn't just come randomly. And a concern might be, well, it's a large influential investor which is bringing the shareholder proposal, and it's the large influential investor monitoring the company more generally, which leads to the upswing in performance. It's nothing specific about that proposal. So what is this idea of a regression discontinuity is that you're going to take some proposals which fail with 49% of the vote and ones that succeed with 51% of the vote. So what's the advantage of that is that whether you're 49 or whether you're 51, that's essentially random because it's not unlikely to be caused by this large influential investor, because if there was such an investor, they would increase the voting support from 49, maybe to 70 rather than to 51. So because there's randomness around this, by comparing those two types of votes, ones that narrowly fail to ones that narrowly pass, you can look at the effect of the vote in particular, rather than things which could be driving the vote coming there to begin with, such as large investors. So it's the vote itself, 
passing these proposals, which aim to serve wider society, such as responsible sourcing, but as a byproduct, they end up improving accounting performance and profitability and so forth. So actually, through this regression discontinuity approach, she, she does actually demonstrate causality because of that random factor around the 49 to 51, which is very interesting. And so if, if we take all of this together, it, it does seem that there is, yeah, I mean, you know, there's not the absolute sort of nailed on proof, but there's a decent body of evidence building up now looking across a number of stakeholder dimensions that say that, you know, treating material stakeholders well uh, does lead to improved performance. Would, would that be a fair statement? Yes, I think it would be. And I think that's a halfway house between the claims of, of both sides that you see in the media. So you have some claims, as you mentioned, Tom White at the start, which suggest it always pays off. And then you have others which say it's a complete load of rubbish and it, it never pays off. But just like many things, reality is in the middle. There are some material dimensions that, that matter. But it certainly isn't the case that we can apply some ESG screen indiscriminately and hope to achieve higher long term shareholder returns. But if we go back to the discussion in the, in the last episode, I mean, what we've talked about here in terms of this evidence so far is really looking at good treatment of stakeholders and, and whether that leads to long term value. And, and, and you could argue that all we're doing here is really building the case for enlightened shareholder value, where you know even Milton Friedman said that you should treat your stakeholders well. You know, to the extent that that's going to improve the returns in the business. Is there anything that goes beyond this? One of the, the ways that you contrasted Pikeonomics with enlightened shareholder value was the dimension of intrinsic motivation and the fact that you know, pursuit of purpose as the direct objective actually led to value as the byproduct rather than using purpose as a sort of instrumental goal. So is there any research studies that sort of touch upon this more intrinsic dimension of purpose? There is. And I think the closest to this is, is a paper uh, by Claudia Gartenberger, Andrea Pratt and George Serafim, which looks at four of the questions from the best company survey that I looked at in my paper. And they chose four which seemed to be particularly close to purpose. So these questions were, my work has special meaning. This is not just a job. The next one was, when I look at what we accomplish, I feel a sense of pride. The third is, I feel good about the ways we contribute to the community. And the fourth is, I'm proud to tell others I work here. So let me stand in the author's corner. So those are measures which are certainly have purpose elements. And uh, they find that companies that do well, which, which have high scores on those responses, they beat the market by 59 to 7.6% per year, even after controlling for risk. But let me try to put the sceptical hat on. Some might say, well, those are questions which are still about employee satisfaction rather than purpose. So to have a sense of pride, to be proud to tell others we work here, for your work to be a, have special meaning, that could just be a company which is good at managing employees. And, and that's not the fault of the authors, right? They've got, I think, what I see to be the best measure of purpose. But the crux of the issue is, is that purpose is just really difficult to capture. We can look at companies' purpose statements, but we don't know much about whether they're being put into practice. And exactly as you say, Tom, purpose is something which is intrinsic. It may well be that companies do have a purpose, but don't fully express them. So I think uh, while we would love to have this clear measure of purpose and to say 
purpose definitely causes superior performance. I think just as the data that we currently have, I think the strongest that we can say is certain measures of stakeholder value are linked to long-term shareholder returns. And the evidence is in some cases close to causal, but I don't think we can say that there's a causal effect of purpose on profits, at least not yet. Yeah, okay. So that is a somewhat more premature or an earlier stage of research, I guess, in um, tying down that that absolute uh, relationship. And I suppose what this shows is that in these areas is always going to be you know, the scope you know, for business judgment for the convictions of leaders. But I think what this does show is that you know, leaders who have a conviction about creating a purpose-led organization, there's not a whole bunch of evidence that says they're on the wrong track. And indeed, there's some indicative evidence that says they're, they're quite likely on the right track, but we can't absolutely overclaim for it. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's important in terms of the correct use of evidence. So one criticism that, that I get as being an academic and always wanting to find stuff and evidence is that evidence can only look at what has been tried and what has been practiced in the past. Let's say an executive would like to come up with some completely new way of running her company. There won't be evidence for that, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's going to be wrong. Right. So what I have an issue with is people trying stuff and basing on evidence when the evidence is, is flimsy. But it may well be we could say, well, there is actually no evidence affirmatively for purpose driving performance, but there's no evidence against. And there's certainly suggestive studies on other elements linked to purpose, like stakeholder value, which are positive. And so we're going to pursue purpose for these reasons, not because there's some clear cause link, but because I've got the conviction that this is something which is at least not going to harm my company's performance, at least given the existing studies that there are on the link between stakeholder and shareholder value. Hmm. Okay, so let, we, we've looked at the case for economics and for the role of purpose in driving shareholder returns. Let, let's now look at some of the counter evidence on this and a couple of issues I'd like to get your thoughts on, Alex. So one is the question of diversity, a very topical issue at the moment. And, and it has become almost a sort of an unchallenged truth that greater diversity leads to greater performance. But uh, the picture is a bit more nuanced than that, isn't it? What, what, what does the evidence say on this one? Thanks, Tom. Yeah, so this is a, a very thorny issue because I, like many people, would love to believe that diversity pays off. Uh, I'm a strong believer in diversity. So as you'll know, if you've read the book, I use female pronouns for the CEO. And this is not just a token action. This is to highlight that many people who use male pronouns just assume that the CEO has to be male when it certainly does not. And when I became managing editor, of the Review of Finance, which is the top finance journal in Europe, I appointed the first two women on the editorial board that there had been in 21 years. It was an embarrassment that for the prior 20, we'd only had all male boards. But what the evidence finds, at least in terms of diversity at the boardroom level and diversity in terms of demographic diversity, such as gender or ethnic diversity, is that there is no systematic evidence of a positive link. And this is quite different to what we often see portrayed. Um, for example, in the consultation for the new corporate governance code, the document said there is clear evidence that greater diversity leads to better performance, when actually this clear evidence was only one study. That study wasn't peer-reviewed and published in a uh, top journal, and it actually made some very elementary flaws. 
But why might it be that these studies are quite influential? It could be the confirmation bias issue that we started this podcast series with, is that people would love to believe that diversity pays off and therefore would latch onto any study which claims that. And indeed, when I asked investors why they pursue diversity strategies, they say it's because it's clear evidence that diverse boards make better decisions. Indeed, Vanguard recently said the business case is compelling. Diverse boards make better decisions and better decisions lead to better results over the long term. But actually, the evidence for this is is pretty weak. It could well be that investors think I am going to vote for more diverse boards because my goal is not just to maximize long-term shelter returns, but I want to lead to a more equal society. And it could be that women and ethnic minorities have been unfairly treated throughout decades. And the only way that we're going to change this is that we're going to take some affirmative steps um, for that. And that's an absolutely fair position to have. So going back to one of my early responses, right, we, we can do things without evidence, But where I have more of an issue is people saying, well, we're going to vote for more diverse boards on gender and ethnic dimensions because there is clear evidence that that's going to lead to long term financial performance where the evidence is actually weak on that. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the other the other issues that we can have with this is that if these sort of superficial explanations are accepted, it can avoid dealing with deeper issues. And it may well be the case that simply putting more women and um, ethnic minorities into a system designed by and for white men doesn't yield exactly the results we'd hope for. It may be that actually there are deeper system changes that are needed in order for diverse teams and groups to flourish and create more value. So I think another reason for really looking hard at the evidence on this and challenging ourselves is to is to check that we're looking at the right issue, which is quite plausibly in the area of diversity, much deeper than a, than a pure numbers game. That's absolutely right, Tom. So so what really matters is diversity of thinking. And there is evidence from the organisational behaviour literature that diversity of thinking leads to better decisions, at least in some situations. There's somewhere it might not where you want to take decisive action and you don't want to have a disagreement. But let's stick with the positives of diversity of thinking. But diversity of thinking is not exactly the same as ethnic and gender diversity. So certainly, There is evidence finding that women and minorities might think differently from white men. But we also need a way to harness that diversity, because if it is that the way that a boardroom is conducted is that there's a resistance to dissenting viewpoints or they're raised in a token way but not taken seriously, or that there's not a commitment to diversity throughout the organization, then this could backfire because a company could well be thinking, oh, look, we are ticking the diversity box by adding a token minority to the board and not addressing this issue. And so I think it's important for investors not just to evaluate a company's diversity by the superficial measures, but to the extent possible, talk to management and ask what are the ways in which you are encouraging diversity of thought and psychological safety in the boardroom and, and throughout the whole organization. So another area which is or sort of seems commonly to be claimed is that barely a day goes by without some study or other showing that socially responsible investment outperforms or has outperformed in the pandemic. And indeed, actually, if I look at my own portfolio, I have an impact fund that's performed extraordinarily well. But I I think that probably has more to do that it's loaded with technology and healthcare stocks than than anything else. Uh, But what what, what does the evidence say, really, if we looked systematically at this question of ESG investment strategies? 
Yeah, so there's a lot of evidence which looks at socially responsible funds and finds that over long time periods and throughout the world, regardless of whether you look at the US or Europe or Asia, the link um, between that and long-term returns is at best uh, zero and in some measures it's negative. So responsible funds either underperform the market or after you do certain risk adjustments, they, they market perform. So there is certainly not the idea that study after study shows that SI funds outperform, which was a claim that Hargreaves Lansdowne, a broker, uh, made last year. So maybe you might think, well, maybe this has changed now. We're in a new paradigm where in the past, responsible investing didn't pay off, but now it does. And as you say, Tom, many people point to the fact that in the pandemic, responsible investing funds have outperformed. But again, we need to be careful of confirmation bias because the pandemic has only lasted a few months. And indeed, had we found the opposite result, that ethical investing doesn't pay off in the pandemic, people would have said, you're just so short term, it's you can't look at performance over just a few months. So the fact that it's performed well over the past few months, we should apply the same scepticism to what we would have done had the result been in the opposite direction. And then, as you say, we also need to control for other factors for these emitted variables. In fact, there are studies which find that this premium to SI funds is simply a long technology, short energy premium. So they don't do the controls for industry that I did with my employee satisfaction study. Mm. I mean, actually, linked to this, there's quite a lot of evidence around so-called sin stocks, isn't there, and their long-term outperformance? There is. And, and this is perhaps the, the biggest challenge that uh, responsible investing advocates have to face. So there was a paper by Harrison Hong and uh, Martin Katwicik, which looks at sin stocks like tobacco, alcohol and gambling, and then compares them to similar industries, so food and entertainment industries, and finds that over decades, sin stocks outperformed the close comparables. Now, this is a little bit different, however, from the employee satisfaction study, because in that study, what I found was that there wasn't just higher stock return performance. I also found that those firms were also more profitable. And so the mechanism that I had was that employee satisfaction led to workers becoming more productive, more efficient, more likely to stay. So there's greater profitability and that greater profitability manifested in higher stock returns. Now, in this paper on sin stocks, they didn't actually find that the sin stocks were more profitable. So it wasn't that sin led to employees being happy that they're working for a sin company and therefore being more productive. It was, in fact, a different explanation. And here's the explanation. It's the idea that there are many investors who can't invest in sin stocks because of social norms. So if the London Business School endowment was to invest in tobacco, then maybe uh, many alums would not donate to LBS. And it's the same with pension funds and the like. So if indeed many investors are constrained from investing in sin stocks, then only a small subset of investors can hold them. And therefore, they're bearing a disproportionate amount of risk. And so their interpretation was that these high returns were compensation for disproportionate risk bearing. And this is where uh, that explanation, Alex, really gets to the heart of a, a problem, I think, for advocates of responsible investing on the basis that it potentially outperforms, which is if we want ESG-focused investing to do what we want it to do, it should be raising the cost of capital for poor ESG performers. 
and so it should be making it more expensive for them to become economically viable. But the absolute mirror of higher cost of capital is higher expected returns. I mean, they're one and the same. And so I don't really see how we can be arguing for you know, a long-term situation where ESG both lowers cost of equity and increases expected returns. It seems to me that the best we can hope for is that we're going through a transition period where ESG factors are becoming more valued and therefore they've led to outperformance. But it seems to me to be positively quite dangerous to be assuming that that outperformance will continue forever in, in share price terms. That's exactly right. And that, that's a really important nuance because what these studies look at is they look at realised returns. So they look at, they take a portfolio and they look at the long-term stock returns to that portfolio. And there's two ways of interpreting those realised returns. So let's say there's high realised returns to a employee satisfaction portfolio or a sin stock portfolio. Now, one interpretation was those high realised returns are high expected returns, which is they were pure compensation for risk. So investors weren't surprised, right? Had you told them 30 years ago that there would be high returns for holding SIN stocks, nobody would have done anything any different because they expected those high returns because they knew what they were having was something risky. But there's a second interpretation, which is that these high returns were unexpected which was that uh, companies with high employee satisfaction, they did better because people were in this pie splitting mindset that employee satisfaction is fluffy. They didn't realize that it would grow the pie and make shareholder returns better off. And so if that's the case, then had people known in 1984, which is when I started my data set, that there were these high returns, they would have changed their behavior and they would have bought the stocks in this best companies list. But you can't have it both ways, right? You can't claim both that good ESG is going to lead to a lower cost of capital and also it's going to lead to high expected returns because one thing goes one way and the other thing goes the other way. Very interesting. So I think if we summarize sort of where we've got to so far in this discussion, there's, there's a pretty good and growing body of evidence that stakeholder-oriented management and leadership is supportive of higher long-term returns and actually improved operating performance, not just, not just share price returns. And that indeed, there's some indicative evidence that even the more intrinsic dimensions of purpose are also positive for organizations' performance. But we have to accept that there are some you know, thorny counterexamples that should give us pause for thought, not to reject the responsible business or economics approach, but sometimes to you know, look deeper at whether we're really looking at the underlying issues as opposed to superficial metrics. And I guess that one of the concerns that you probably share of some of the skeptics around responsible business is that we are in a world of real measurement difficulties where some quite box ticking approaches are being taken to judging whether a business is responsible or, or not. Where are you at the moment? Are you optimistic or pessimistic in terms of how we're going in terms of measuring responsible business? I'm actually quite pessimistic that we'll ever have perfect measures of ESG because I think some of the most truly important factors of ESG are qualitative. So you can count the number of jobs, you can measure wages, but you can't have a measure of the quality of jobs. But that pessimism actually makes me optimistic about the future of ESG investing. 
I am optimistic in that there are increasingly good measures which are being developed. But also part of my optimism is that even though I don't think we will ever get perfect measures, I don't actually think that there's a problem. Because I think the fact that there is this ambiguity and there will never be a perfect measure actually strengthens the case for responsible investing rather than weakening it. Because let's say there was a perfect measure of diversity or ESG, then we wouldn't need human investors, right? We would just have a smart beta fund run by a computer, which would get this great data and then form a portfolio on the basis of it. It's the fact that we do need to take into account strategic context. We do need to think about not just demographic diversity, but uh, diversity of thought that leads to the importance of human investors. And so that's why I think it's, it's an ideal thing for investors to take seriously, because it's something where you can't to think about data in isolation, you need human judgment. So one analogy I often use is uh, interviewing people for a job. Now, there's great data now. You could get to Webcrawler to crawl the web and to look at their LinkedIn profile and social media accounts and scrape as much as possible. But no matter how great data you have, I don't think you'll ever replace the interview. You still want to interview a potential person that you want to hire. And similarly for an investor, you would still want to talk to management and if you can, visit the factories and talk to the employees. And I don't think data will ever replace that, no matter how sophisticated it is. So data is still useful, just like a CV is useful. But I think you can't replace the meeting of management, just like the job interview, in order to put the CV or the data into context. So I want to just bring this discussion to a close by um, taking us back to where we started really in today's podcast around the whole question of evidence. And we've talked about the importance of good evidence and the, the importance of countering confirmation bias. How can a practitioner or a journalist sift the good from the bad and, and avoid falling into the trap of confirmation bias? This is a really important question. And as you say, Tom, it goes far beyond the evidence for responsible business, but it's the evidence on, on anything. So one thing to look at is to look at, is the paper published in a top peer review journal? So why is that important? Well, peer review involves a paper being scrutinized by the world's top academics, and they make sure that it's methodologically extremely robust. And, and peer review is, is not just a rubber stamp at the top journals. They will reject 95% of papers, such as the stringency of the standards. And uh, we can find uh, lists of the top peer review journals quite easily. For example, the Financial Times has a top 50 journal list. So what's great about that is that practitioners should not be expected to review a paper themselves. They don't have the time. They may not have the statistical expertise in this. But by looking at something which is peer reviewed, we can stand on the shoulders of giants and, uh, and trust the fact that other people have reviewed this. Now, it's important to stress that the peer review process is, is not perfect. Mistakes are made just because there's human judgment. But what I do want to address is this concern of publication bias that people will often allege. And the idea here is that, well, maybe the academic game is sort of an inside job. Everybody believes in, say, efficient markets and shareholder value, and therefore they will be biased towards rejecting any novel paper which shows that markets are inefficient or that stakeholder value is better. That's absolutely not the case because how journals get their reputation is by publishing impactful papers because anything which is a new paradigm will get a lot of citations. 
And those citations contribute to the journal's impact factor, which is the main measure of its, its prestige. So there are reasons for why the peer review process might not be perfect, just because of human error might mean that you fail to notice some flaw in a paper. But I would certainly say that not being willing to publish new and innovative research is not one of those issues. Well, Alex, thanks again for another great discussion. And I'd like to remind listeners that you can buy Alex's book and also access a whole load of great related resources at growthepie.net. And for the next few episodes, we're going to look at what Pyconomics has to say about some of the most controversial issues in business. In the next episode, we'll start with share buybacks and dividends. We'll ask whether these play a vital role in capital reallocation and growth or whether they're resulting in businesses being starved of investment and employees being deprived of pay increases as executives seek to maximise their bonuses. So do subscribe to make sure you don't miss this and other episodes in this series. Thank you for listening.